You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. Today's scripture is from Matthew 9, 35 through chapter 10, verse 1. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. Before we jump into the text, let's pray together. Father, this morning I'm struck by the songs we're singing and some of the incredible promises that are in them, that our life is hidden with Christ before you, that we cannot die. Even though we die, we shall live. These great and glorious truths, Lord, that we have peace before your throne, that there is grace extended to us that not only welcomes us in, but it also sustains us. And Lord, these truths, they're so massive, and yet in the day-to-day walk of life. They're so easy to lose sight of. It's so easy for me to get distracted by things that have to be done, smaller things. And so, Lord, I pray this morning, I confess the sense of inadequacy I feel in handling your word, but also trust that your spirit has let us hear and You've given us your word, and you want us to dive in. And so I pray that your spirit would be actively at work. We know he is but that he would pierce our hearts, he would open our eyes. He might reveal to us things that we've never seen before or maybe we saw a long time ago, but we've forgotten. And Lord, I pray that we would walk out of here with a greater love for you and for this world that you've come to save. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the text we're looking at today marks a significant transition in Matthew's gospel, we're transitioning into basically part two. Part one, Matthew, the first nine chapters, all he's doing really is he is laying the case out for who Jesus is. And he focuses throughout those nine chapters chapters, almost exclusively on the things Jesus taught and the miracles he performed. The disciples, they're really almost extras in the first nine chapters of the gospel. You don't hear much about them except for when they freak out on the boat in the middle of the storm. But other than that, they're in the background. But what happens here at the end of nine, beginning into 10, is the disciples who were in the background, who were extras, start to come to the foreground. And they come alongside Jesus. And they play a key supporting role because for the first time, Jesus, God in human flesh, he calls them not just to follow him, but to actually join with him and participate with him and the work that he's doing. Verse 1 of chapter 10, Matthew tells us, and he, that's Jesus, called to him his 12 disciples 
and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. Now, that verse, a lot of the, the thoughts and the words in that verse, they show up again and again, and they've shown up multiple times up to this point, but it's always been Jesus who's been casting out demons and healing every disease and affliction. But here he's saying the work that I've been doing, now you are going to do. And I'm going to send you out to go do that work. And in doing so, this verse, in this verse, Jesus establishes a pattern that we see throughout the Gospels, throughout the book of Acts, which is the first history book of the church, throughout the letters and epistles and the New Testament. And the, the principle, the pattern that he lays out is simply this, that those God calls, he also sends. That God never calls us in without also sending us back out. And actually, at the very heart of this call, when he calls us in, at the heart of it is a call to go out. Because when Jesus calls us, he's basically calling us to three things. He calls us to be with him, so to follow him. He calls us to become like him. And then he calls us to go and tell others about him, to go and announce, and in some ways even to advance his kingdom. So at the heart of our call as Christians, it's a mission. It's a co-mission that we do together. And for the next two weeks, we're going to talk about this call that we've been given to go and tell others about Jesus. But to be very transparent with you, I find preaching on mission and evangelism, these are some of the most challenging topics to teach and preach on. Uh, like, if, if I have to preach on, explain if God's sovereign, why is there evil in the world? I'm like, that's a piece of cake. Preaching on evangelism and mission, that's, that's more challenging. And there's a few reasons for this. One is most Christians, for most Christians, telling others about Jesus, it's not their strong suit. Most Christians struggle when they do evangelism. A lot of Christians struggle to do it at all. And so even the very topic, when it comes up, I know it stirs a lot of guilt in people. It causes a lot of people to feel like there's just one more thing I'm not doing well as a Christian. And I don't like doing that in my preaching. Uh, I don't enjoy that. But I also struggle to preach on it because it's just hard. It's hard. And it's gotten harder. And I think it's harder to tell others about Jesus in our culture in this moment than it's ever been in the history of our country. Our world has changed dramatically in the last 30, 40, 50 years. You think about the technology we have, iPhones, you know, the internet, all of the stuff that's come in. Sometimes when I talk with my kids, I already feel like, like my dad used to talk to me. Like when I was a kid, we didn't have access to the entire catalog of every recorded music on one device that we could listen to at any time. If we want to listen to a song, we had to walk down to Roadhouse Music, put down $15 and buy a CD. My kids don't even know what CDs are. They think that they're DVDs. And I'm like, no, this is, this is before DVDs. There's a lot of changes, and some of the changes have been really good and beneficial. But with those changes, there's been some shifts that have happened in our culture. And these shifts have made it absolutely harder on us as we seek to tell others about Jesus. There's three that I want to highlight. The first shift is what you could call the secular shift. That What I mean simply is that the Christian story and the Christian faith, which was once at the center of our culture, is now being moved 
to the margins. Christianity, which was once the dominant influence in our country, well, the influence is starting to wane. And this, there's a lot of implications of this, but I say that in regards to evangelism, to say this, that many of the ways of doing evangelism that we were taught or that were taught 20 to 30 years ago, they have lost or they're losing their effectiveness. I guess that for many of us who grew up in the church, many of us, especially if you grew up in the church in the Midwest, evangelism was often, in essence, calling people back to something that they already kind of knew. So when I was doing student ministry, it was about 20 years ago, I was leading a Bible study, and this guy, Mitch, I knew Mitch from the high school, but he never came to our Bible study. Mitch shows up, and he's kind of a cool guy, and shows up at our Bible study, and I'm like, what's Mitch doing here? So we're like, hey, welcome, what's, what's going on? And he said, well, I heard about this. He's like, I became a Christian this week. And we're like, really? Because like, I knew him, and I'm, I knew his circle of friends. Like, this is great. I'm like, what, what happened? He was like, I was driving down the interstate, and I saw this billboard, and it said, hell is real. And when I saw that billboard, I knew Jesus is Lord, and I needed to repent and trust in him. Which was so bizarre, because we make fun of that billboard all of the time. I'm like, that doesn't help anything. It helped Mitch. Um, but I say that, it, it wasn't like the gospel was presented there. He already, he already knew a lot of it. And so that billboard, whatever that encounter was, it just triggered something. It, it triggered something that he already knew and he was responding to. I think when, when we think of Billy Graham, that's why he had such an amazing ministry and such a profound impact. But basically what Billy Graham did in his crusades, if you've ever been to one, he's calling people back to something that they already knew. Well, with where our culture is going, and a lot of places it's already there, evangelism is no longer calling people back to something they knew. Instead, it's introducing people to something new, like something that they don't know, like even basic core truths of Christianity. And so we're actually starting a lot further back in the conversation, which requires more energy, more time, more care. So that's the first shift. The second shift that's made evangelism more challenging is that we as a society, we're moving away from believing in any objective or universal truths, and we're moving towards what we could call a universal subjectivism, where everything is relative, and truth is relative. You hear it the way people talk about truth these days. Well, this is my truth. You have your truth, I have my truth. And the way we determine our different truths is primarily through experience. We trust our own experiences more than we trust experts or even evidence. It's like, well, I'm gonna determine what's right, what's wrong, what's true, what's false. I read a book recently called The Death of Expertise by Tom Nichols. And in it, he writes, never have so many people had so much access to so much knowledge and yet have been so resistant to learning anything. We're overloaded with information, but we don't trust any of it. This is like the only explanation that there is for flat earthers. You know what I mean? Like the people who believe that the earth is completely flat. For them... They will say, well, the earth's flat, and you know how I know? Because when I go outside and look around, it's not round, it's flat. That's what my experience tells me. So we, we don't trust experts in the, uh, in the evidence, but at the same time, 
we still kind of glean from it because we've all read like half of a Wikipedia page on something. We all kind of are our own experts now. If any of you ever watched the show Cheers, anyone remember Cheers? Remember Cliff Clavin, the mailman, know-it-all? It's a little known fact. He's always correcting everyone and like telling everyone. Like we're all kind of Cliff Clavin now because we all have a decent amount of information. But in the end, truth is highly subjective and it's determined by our experience. Now, part of the reason for this is because we have so much information, and not only that, because we've seen people manipulate and spin data so often to make it say what they want to say to push their agenda that we just don't trust anything. That's why we have phrases like fake news and alternative facts. We don't trust the data or the evidence. Now, all of this comes together as a society, we're highly suspicious of truth claims. And what this means is that a lot of the evangelistic approaches of 20 or 30 years ago that, that were in place when I was growing up, and I assume many of you, uh, which were highly like driven by apologetics and history, good, good works. Talked about the reality of the resurrection, the historical evidence for it. Books like The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, if you ever read that, or More Than a Carpenter, or Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Really good and helpful books. I think they're answering a lot of questions that people just aren't asking anymore. And I think going to those books, they, they don't hold the kind of sway and influence that they once did because people don't trust evidence. The third and final shift, I'd call the respectability shift. And all I mean by this, it's kind of like the first one, but it's different. Christians, not only are we being pushed to the margins, we're also, as we're doing so, we're moving from a place of real honor to a place of dishonor in the culture. We're moving from a place of being respected to, to losing a lot of respect in the eyes of the world. Growing up, at least where I grew up, Christians were the goody two-shoes. You might not have liked them, and I didn't grow up in the church, but they were like the really good people. That's not the reputation that Christians have anymore. Now Christians are seen as weird, strange, backwards, or even bigoted. I mean, look at how we're portrayed in TV, on TV or in movies. My wife and I were watching a show not too long ago, and there was a Christian portrayed in a, po- like a fairly positive light. And we both looked at each other, and I was like, that's the first time that's happened? And I don't know how long. So we're being pushed to the margins, and we're being kind of, we're looked down upon, we're disrespected, we're losing respect, is a better way to say it. And then there's all the stuff in the church which isn't helping, like the sex scandals, the power plays, the cover-ups, the money grabbing. That's all coming together. And for an increasing number of people in our society, Christians aren't seen as those who are making things better, but instead as those who are making the world worse. You bring all these things together, and what it does is it makes Christians reluctant not just to share their faith, but reticent to even acknowledge their faith before others. And so we come to a text about mission and going and telling the world. A lot of us were like, I don't know if I can do that. I struggle to just be honest with my coworkers or my friends about my faith because I fear the backlash. Barna did a study not too long ago, and he found, they found that 47% of Christian millennials struggle with the very idea of evangelism. 
All of these factors have come together, 47%. And millennials don't think teenagers. If you're between the age of 20 and 40, you're pretty much a millennial. 47% actually said it was wrong for Christians to share their faith with people of other faiths in order to convert them. So all of these things come together. It's no wonder that we struggle not just in telling others about Jesus, even in knowing how we avoid thinking about it. It's a topic that we conveniently forget. Or we just farm out in our minds to the experts and to the extroverts. We farm it out like, Kevin, that's your job on Sunday. I'll bring them in and your job is like to, to talk about the Jesus thing and tell them about Jesus, which is great. That's a great first step. But it's not just for the experts. Others of us, we like to farm it out to the extroverts, those strange, beautiful people like Mo Clark. If you know Mo, our director of community, doesn't matter who you are, within two minutes, Mo's going to be talking to you about Jesus and you're going to be totally engaged in the conversation. We call his office the confessional because if you go in there and you're not a Christian, you most likely are going to be one when you leave. Like he's just got this gift and this power and it's, it's really amazing, uh, and so we look at people like him, and we're like, well, well, we'll farm it out to him. But we can't do that. The calling to tell others about Jesus is a calling he puts on all of our lives. And when we don't step into that calling, we're actually missing out on a huge part of the life he has for us and the life he's redeemed us to. And so the question that I want to at least start to answer over the next two weeks is in light of all of these things, how do we move forward in telling others about Jesus in this cultural moment? How do we move this forward? I, a lot of times if I'm preaching on a topic like evangelism, like I am today, I'll go back and look at old sermons that I've written, see if there's anything good that I forgot, because if I forget it, you probably forgot it. I could say it again. I went back to these old sermons and they were, they were good and they were helpful. There's good stuff in them but I don't think they really helped move the conversation forward because they were, honestly, they felt a little bit outdated. They weren't connecting with real life, the life that we're experiencing every day in this world that's changing so rapidly. And so what I wanna do is kind of step back, move the conversation backwards and say, let's look at this like big picture. How do we move it forward? Well, let's go back and there's no better place to go than Jesus calling his first disciples. And so today we're just focusing on Four verses, the last three verses of chapter 9, the verse, first verse of chapter 10. The rest of chapter 10, which we'll look at next week, that's where Jesus starts to give strategy and instructions and encouragements. It's in chapter 10 that Jesus answers a lot of the, the who, what, where, when, and how questions of missions. He gets to the methods. But here at the end of chapter 9, Jesus speaks more to the why of mission. It's not so much method as it is motivation. And I think when we get the motivation wrong, everything else will go wrong with it. I think when we get the motivation right for mission, everything will naturally follow. And so the big question I want to try to answer this morning is, why did Jesus come? Even more, why did Jesus send his disciples into the world? Why is there mission? And I... I won't leave you on the edge of your seats. We're told very clearly in verse 36. Why? When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them 
because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then in the very next verse, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, the labors are few, pray for workers. And so Matthew connects these for us. He says that Jesus looks out on the world, on the mass of people that are coming to him, and he has compassion on them. And the word compassion there, it's the, probably the best translation we have of a Greek word that's kind of hard to translate. In the original language, it, that word means something like to be moved in the very depths of your being. It means to be moved in your viscera, in your guts, on behalf of something. So it's kind of like pity and sympathy and compassion, but it's more than that. Like it's, a, it's almost a turning of your stomach out of care and concern for another human being your heart breaking for them and going out to them. And so when Jesus looks at the crowds, I don't know about you, when I look at crowds or if I'm around crowds, if I go to like Thunder Over Louisville or a concert, I usually leave like I don't like crowds and I don't like being around masses of people. Like it's a bit much for me. Jesus looks at the crowd and his heart goes out to them and his heart breaks for them. And that's why he sends his disciples. And there's this picture being painted here when we're told they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I don't want us to miss the picture that Matthew's giving us here. If you know anything about sheep, they're, they're defenseless animals. Like they don't have horns, they don't have claws. To any predators, they look like little sheep nuggets that you can just come and like swallow up. They can't defend themselves. And also, if you know anything about sheep, you know that they are not uh, the most astute of animals. Um, they have a propensity to get themselves into trouble they can't get themselves out of. And so they can wander into thorn bushes. They can wander off the side of cliffs or down cliffs and get themselves in horrible predicaments. Sheep need shepherds. And without shepherds, they're in a lot of trouble. When Matthew tells us that Jesus looked on the crowd and he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, it's like Matthew's telling us that Jesus is like a shepherd who wanders onto a field of shepherdless sheep. So you've got a bunch that are laying in the field, mangled and bloodied because of predators. You've got others who are cut up. They're all either laying down or they're limping along. They don't know where to go. They don't know the path that leads to green pastures. They don't know where the fresh water is. They're harassed and helpless, bloodied and bruised, weary and worn down. One translator said, barely making it. When Jesus looks on humanity, he sees people who are weary and worn down and barely making it. He sees us living in this world it's wrecked by diseases. He sees people tormented by demons. He sees us living under the cloud of the, the ever-present reality of death. He sees us living with like, both ever-present realities of sin and suffering that we can't get away from. And so we do bad things. Bad things are done to us. He looks down and he sees people who don't know why they're here on this earth, don't know what their purpose is. 
And to make matters worse, the, the spiritual leaders, the clergy of that day, who should have been acting as shepherds and answering the question and helping people and showing mercy and showing compassion and showing care, they were actually demanding way more of people than they were ever providing. And in Matthew 23, Jesus goes after them. And he says, you just load weight after weight, burden after burden it on people's shoulder, and you won't lift one finger to help them. Jesus sees it all, and his heart breaks, and his heart goes out. And even though our world today is in many ways very different, in many ways it's very much the same. People are struggling. People are burdened. They're worn out, discouraged, beat down. People are directionless. I mean, our world is filled with so much information, yet most people are starving for any sense of meaning. And our world struggles to give meaningful answers to the most basic questions of life. Questions like, who am I? Why am I here? What's my purpose on this earth? What's wrong with this world? How can what's wrong be made right? Our world can't even answer those questions. I mean, we are taught, at least if you went to public school like I did, we are taught that the reason we are here is because of a cosmic accident. Now, it might have been a Bob Ross, like, happy little accident that came about that produced us, but we are here by accident. And we are, we are living on this rock that is hurling through space, coming from there, nowhere, going to nowhere, and in the end, it's all going to be out, it's all going to burn out and be forgotten. If you believe that our universe came from nowhere and it's going nowhere, then how can you not conclude that everything is meaningless? And I think this is at least part of what's led to the opioid crisis. We don't have a purpose. We don't have meaning. We don't want to think about these questions. And so when the questions do come up, let's just self-medicate with alcohol or with drugs. I think this is part of the reason we're seeing such a rise in suicide rates in our country. And the numbers, if you haven't paid attention, they're staggering. In five years, the suicide rate among girls between the ages of 15 and 20 has gone up by 40 or 50%. I mean, it's the number one, number two, number three cause of death in various different categories. We as a people were profoundly lonely. There's a loneliness epidemic. We're envious. We don't like our lives and we want other people's lives. We're anxious, probably the most anxious people there's ever been. We're just worried all the time. We're depressed, we're harassed, and we're helpless. And yet Jesus, I think, looks upon our world today the same way he looked upon the world 2,000 years ago. When Jesus looked upon the crowds back then, he, he, didn't, he wasn't moved with anger at their sin and rebellion. He wasn't like moved to go judge them or condemn them. Jesus' fundamental response to the human condition is compassion, not condemnation. Jesus' fundamental response to the human condition is compassion, not condemnation. This doesn't mean people aren't sinners. Of course we're sinners. 
just means that we're sufferers too. And the Bible plainly teaches that both of those things are true, that we do bad things, bad things are done to us, that's why our world's the way it is. But we all kind of tend towards one direction or another, like we emphasize the sinner or the sufferer more. In our culture, our world, it tends to minimize the fact that we are all sinners. And our world tends to overemphasize that we're all sufferers too. And I mean, in some ways in our world, like nothing's ever your fault. You're just a perpetual victim. And there's real problems with that. We can't explain why the world's in such a sorry state as it is. But the problem in the church is we go the opposite direction. We make the opposite mistake. Oftentimes in the church, we put almost all of the emphasis exclusively on sin. We see people primarily and sometimes only as sinners. And I would say when we overemphasize humanity's sinfulness without recognizing humanity's suffering, our compassion for the world will be smothered rather than stoked. When we see people primarily through the lens of rebels and sinners who deserve judgment, it's very easy in those moments to turn people into enemies, to write them off. And that's just not the way of Jesus. What motivated Jesus to call and send his disciples was the great compassion he had. Not this, you know, trigger-happy movement to condemnation. And I think as we look at what does it look like to move the mission forward in this strange new world, we've got to start there. And I think we actually have to recover this spirit of great compassion in our own hearts and our own lives. I think one of the great tragedies of the culture war that Christians engaged in over the last 40 years, the greatest tragedy is not that we lost the war. The greatest tragedy is that we lost our compassion in the midst of it. The greatest tragedy is we turn people into enemies who are against our way of life and who need to be shut down as opposed to fellow sinners that we've been called to proclaim really good news to. If we're going to recover our calling to bring good news to the world, our heart must first break for the world, like Jesus' heart broke for the world. So I think one application I want to put before you this morning, it's a prayer, it's a real simple prayer. Lord, teach me to see the world as you see the world. Lord, teach me to see the world as you see the world. Lord, break my heart for the things that break your heart. And we are all learning to see the world from something, from someone. And if you have cable news on every day for four hours, it doesn't matter, left or right, it's teaching you how to see the world. We need to be praying, Lord, teach me how to see the world. And then we need to be going to his word and saying, let me see how you see the world. Let me see. Break my heart for the things that break your heart. But we can't stop there. Because Jesus doesn't just look on humanity and see nothing but like, I mean, it's, it's kind of a heavy sermon. There's a lot of negativity up to this point. But it's, it's what the text says, like harassed, helpless, 
Jesus has great compassion, but he doesn't stop with compassion. Jesus doesn't just look and see great need. When he looks at the world, he also sees great opportunity. And there's this interesting juxtaposition of images. And in verse 36, the world is like a field and humanity are like these mangled, bloody, helpless sheep laying all around. It's a real negative picture. And then in verse 37, the world is a field, but now humanity is viewed as wheat that is ripe for harvest. Jesus doesn't just see the need, he also sees the possibility when he looks at the world. Verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. It's like Jesus is looking at all the need and he's saying, I can actually help. Like this, this is a great opportunity. It's great need, but it's a great opportunity. In a world where people have no understanding of who they are and why they're here, I can help explain who they are and why they're here. Who you are, you are someone who's been created in the image of God. And he loves you and he wants you to know him. Why are you here? Because he put us on this earth to steward it and to make something beautiful. And even though it's broken, there's hope of redemption. In a world that lacks direction, Jesus gives a lot of direction. In a world that lacks purpose, Jesus gives a lot of purpose. In a world where, as I heard an author recently say, in a world where everything is permissible but nothing is forgivable, you guys notice that about our culture? Do whatever you want, it's fine. But if you do something wrong, which is always a moving target, you will never be forgotten. You'll actually just be erased. You'll be canceled out. In a world where everything is permissible and nothing is forgivable, Jesus comes in and shows us a better way, a way in which there are a lot of things that aren't permissible. There are a lot of things we can do, we do do, that aren't good for us, that aren't good for other people. There's plenty of things that aren't permissible, but there's nothing that's unforgivable, except for rejecting the grace that he's shown. And in a world that so quickly cancels people out and erases them, Jesus Christ says, your mistakes, your sins, your worst acts are not the defining moment of your life. The world is ripe for harvest. Even though we're harassed and helpless sheep, Jesus comes and he steps in and he, he basically says in this text, but I'm the good shepherd. And in John 10, he says this explicitly. He says, I am the good shepherd. What does that mean? Well, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I mean, that's a powerful image. There are a whole lot of people who are, you know, vying for our allegiance, which really means they're vying for our money or our attention. Jesus says, everyone else, they're like the hired hand. They'll be there, but if a wolf shows up, they're going to run because it's going to get hard and they're going to bail. And Jesus says, but I'm not going to bail because I'm the good shepherd. I'm not just the great sympathizer. I'm also the good shepherd and the great savior of this world. And there is so much hope. The harvest is so massive. Really, that I need some help is what he's saying. 
mean, Jesus doesn't need help, but he needs help. It's like there's all of this, and it's, it's going to go bad on the vine if, if we don't bring it in. We need more workers. And it kind of makes sense. I mean, it seems like every time Jesus healed one person, three more people would show up. And he looks and just sees how great the need is, how great the opportunity is. He can only be in one place at one time. And that's why he says, all right, I need you guys to go and replicate the work I've been doing. The harvest is plentiful, he says, but the laborers are few. We've been counting up to this point. It's just been not just few, but one, maybe two if you include John the Baptist. Jesus is saying we need laborers. What I find so intriguing is after he, he makes this case, he doesn't say, therefore, go and reap. He says, in light of all of this, go and pray first. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would raise up and send out workers. I don't know why, I don't know why he says that. Like, I can speculate, but to me, it's like, you've got me. Jesus, I'm ready, like, ready to go. Here, he's giving me the application. Oh, wait, stop and pray. What's that about? My best guess, or at least how it's spoken to me, is that Jesus, he doesn't want us to forget that the mission belongs to God long before it belongs to us. It's his mission. He initiated it. He sustains it, and he's going to complete it. Our job is to pray and to open up our lives saying, hey, I want to contribute. I want to be a part. But it's not on me to save the world. It's just on me to show up and be faithful. And we'll see in the very next verse, he calls them to go. But first, he calls them to pray. And I find that often as we pray, that's when God calls us to go. So I want to give you three applications in closing. Some of it's just a summary. Three prayers that I would pray that we might pray. Prayer number one, Lord, teach me to see the world as you see the world. Break my heart for the things that break your heart. Prayer number two, Lord, teach me to see the world the way you see the world. Teach me to see the possibility and the opportunity. That yes, there's great need, but there's great opportunity. And then point number three, the last prayer is, Lord, raise up and send out workers. God, we desperately need more workers. What would it look like for us as a church, moved by compassion first and foremost, to let that motivate us and lead us by the power of God's spirit into the world? What a different picture that would be than what the world's seen up to this point. As we move to communion, I recognize that we're, we're all over the map here spiritually. People are in different places. Some of you are like, that's great and all. I don't even know if I am a Christian. I was. I don't know if I am right now. My soul's not in a great place. Others of you, you're like, I am not a Christian. It's kind of interesting. You get to overhear a little bit of the strategy, the background of evangelism. But wherever you are, if you're a person right now who's struggling to believe that God could love you, you're struggling to believe that God has patience for you, if you feel right now condemned, I want you to know that our God is a God of great compassion. 
And Jesus Christ, he was moved by compassion to send his disciples out, but it was that same compassion that led him to the night of his betrayal. The great compassion, great love he had, that's what led him to say, this is my body that's going to be broken for you. And this is the cup of my blood, the cup of the new covenant. My blood's going to be spilled for you. The Lord's table, it's a drama, it's a reenactment and a reminder of the incredible compassion that God has on us. And because of that compassion, we don't have to run from him when we sin or when life gets hard. We can run to him. And because of that compassion, once he's shown that compassion to us, it makes it a whole lot easier to show compassion to other people. Once you know the depths to which you've been forgiven and loved, the mercy you've received, it's really, it becomes a lot easier to show that kind of mercy and love and compassion on others. So as we come to the table, if you're a believer, I encourage you to feast in remembrance of what Christ has done for us, the compassion he's shown to us. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but instead you put your faith in Jesus Christ who gave his life to give you new life. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.